evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group, the weekly weather podcast get together. We uh, appreciate you uh, joining us tonight and listening along. This is show number 227 on this Wednesday, April the 11th, 2018. Tonight, our guest is John Jensenius. He is a meteorologist up in Portland, Maine, the gray Portland, Maine office. He's the warning coordinator meteorologist and also the lightning safety expert. So uh, we're happy to have John back on with us this evening. Uh, if you remember last year, John joined us and uh, we liked it so much that we continued the theme and uh, lightning is a big issue here in the Southeast, especially as we start to warm up uh, as we are in the next few days. So we want to make sure that you are safely uh, outside. And if you hear thunder or sea storms coming, you know what to do. So uh, we're happy to have John on with us tonight and we'll get to him here in just a little bit. But before we do that, we'll do a little housekeeping rules. If you are watching tonight on the live broadcast, either on YouTube or listening through Periscope or Facebook Live. We appreciate you watching us tonight. And if you have any questions or want to interact with us during the show, you can do that one of many ways by commenting on the Periscope Live or Periscope feed or the Facebook Live feed. Uh, or uh, the best way to do it is tweeting us at Carolina WX Group. We monitor the uh, tweets throughout the show. And if uh, you have any questions for John or maybe some of our panelists, uh, we will uh, look at them and, and get them to our guests uh, during the show. So uh, please, uh, we'd love to have your interaction. And if you're listening towards the end of the broadcast, uh, we'll let John uh, give out some information on how you can learn more about lightning safety and, and some of the best uh, places to uh, to view that information. So uh, again, we appreciate John being on with us on show uh, 227. It's been kind of a, a quiet week here in the Southeast. Not a lot of weather to talk about. Uh, we are watching a uh, approaching cold front coming through this weekend that may spawn some severe weather in uh, portions of the area. So uh, that is something we're watching. But in the meantime, uh, we're finally starting to warm up. And so a place that's already warm, and I've seen uh, some pictures out of, or not pictures, but some th temperatures out of uh, Texas, Ashley. It seems like you guys really warmed up today. L lots of places in the 80s. And I even seen some 90s out in the uh, the far western part of the state. Yeah, definitely. So I'm currently in College Station for some work training, and I think we got up to 83 degrees today. So it was pretty toasty out there. Um, I definitely think you guys got some revenge on me, though, because it was very warm a couple weeks ago. And then that cold front came through, and Saturday we were 41 in Austin. And Sunday we were 45, close to 50. So it was freezing. So we felt some cold temperatures there, but... We're rebounding. Friday looks to be 90 around Austin, and we have chances for thunderstorms. I think it's mostly going to be out east, but some more severe weather coming our way. It is that season. So, Ashley, we're glad you you got to warm up and join the rest of us here in the southeast where it's very warm. We'll go over to the uh, Raleigh-Durham area, the uh, Research Triangle. We'll bring in Jordan. Jordan, how's things going over in uh, Chapel Hill this evening? It's been a beautiful day today, Scotty, and really the last couple of days, um, not a whole lot to talk about so far this week. Um, we did have a, a sort of a broken record uh, snow event over the weekend. I, I swear the winter machine just does not want to turn off for North Carolina. Um, this for uh, Greensboro and Raleigh both recorded a trace of snow, uh, no, no measurable, um, but for Greensboro at least, that that now makes at least a trace of snow for every month since December. So we have had our fair share, if not more, uh, and um, winter just continues to keep punching here into uh, the middle spring months. So we'll, um, we'll hope that the warm up here lasts for good. I know uh, you and I both saw the uh, tweet from Tim Buckley. None of the long range models are showing any chances of snow or snow flurries. So that's a good sign. Yes. <laughs> and Jordan, I, I totally, it slipped my mind that you guys did see some snow over the weekend as, as that rain kind of changed over. So I know you guys uh, are ready to get rid of the snow in a place that's not seen snow in a long time. Let's go down to the Charleston, South Carolina area. I'll bring in Shay Gibson and Jared Smith. Guys, how's things going in the, uh, the coastal areas of South Carolina? I'll let uh, Jared go on with the with the climate, and I'll talk about the coastal winds and whatnot here in a second. Cool. Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, we've been uh, we've been in January, April, 
for the last few days. We've been <clears throat> our our highs. We've been topping out in the fifties, in the upper fifties. And and to give you a general idea, we got we got to fifty seven a couple days ago. Um, normal high in mid January is uh, fifty nine. So we were definitely. Uh, underperforming a lot of very angsty people but then we saw that clearing line start to slowly advance uh last night and we've had a much nicer day today got to about 69 um tomorrow 75 and then getting into the 80s ahead of that cold front uh which looks a little energetic looks kind of interesting um you know a lot of still a lot of variables when you see uh, uh quite the negatively tilted trough that we're seeing on the guidance pretty consistently you know makes you stand it makes your hair stand up and take notice uh we'll see what happens don't cancel anything but you know stay with your weather people um but yeah you know it's uh back to nice spring weather down here and to add to that jared yeah our um coastal winds today we had a pretty decent little east northeast we call it uh east northeast backdoor sea breeze and uh i'll go ahead and make sure everybody can see that right now uh, right now, things are pretty calm. I mean, everything, you know, the, the wind speeds have sort of died down a lot. We got a lot of single digits up, up and down the southeast North Carolina coast. As we get into Charleston, we still have uh, right around 10 knots hanging right around east-southeast east, winds. All the palms did jump up today, and we saw winds come up to about 18 knots. It was good for a little kiteboarding session mid-afternoon, uh, early afternoon. So uh, we had we had a pretty good time doing that. But just, just one of those little tricky events because the models really slumped off on that. And it kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. You know, there was there was not a lot of beachgoers there, but um, just just one of those things for this time of the year in April, we always expect to see these east northeast winds really crank up along the coast, even on seemingly light days. That that backdoor sea breeze will kick in. Uh, sea surface temperatures are right around 61, 62 degrees. I'm trying to activate that. It looks like it's down right now. Maybe the high res um, NASA resolution. I think we get ours from the Sport SST. But looks like it's down right now. Either way. Uh, let me see if I can get it. There we go. And you can see that the Gulf Gulf Stream waters are, are still pretty warm. We're right up near 80 degrees for the most part along the uh, thermohaline current right down the middle. Uh, as we get along the Florida Hatteras Slope, that's just, this is a lot uh, an area where we see a lot of convection this time of year, especially with northeast winds, uh, as that warm body water acts as an artificial landmass. We get closer to the coast along the shelf waters. And we see that the sea surface temperatures are definitely a lot lower. So we're still ha hanging on to low to mid 50s up in North Carolina. And then just near 60 degrees along Charleston, a little bit higher in the low 60s along Georgia. So that, that's sort of the pattern here um, along the southeast coast as far as the, the water temps and the winds. So kind of a, a mix of winds, anywhere from northeast winds to southerly winds. And we're starting to see the cannonball jellies arrive in droves along the beaches. And that's kind of a sign that spring is firmly here. And uh, I kind of go by that every year. I usually do a blog one. I'm waiting to do it now. I'll get a few pictures from some locals on the jellyfish. And then uh, I'll say, hey, they've arrived now. So we can expect the sea surface temperatures to climb and our southerly sea breezes to fill in without the marine layering issues. So back to you, Scotty. All right, Shay, thank you for that report. We appreciate it. Sounds like those temperatures are slowly starting to warm up. So maybe you can get out there and kiteboard and it's not as cold for you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think most of us are ready for the warmer sea surface temperatures after this long winter. I think it got down to about 40 degrees at one point. That's really cold for here. It is. It's a little too cold for me. Well, let's bring in our guest tonight, uh, John Jensenius. He joins us from the National Weather Service up in the Portland Gray area in Maine. And uh, John, I guess you're not really seeing any of the 70s or 80s yet, are you? No, no. I, I was actually uh, looking at some of those numbers and quite envious of uh, those warm temperatures. Uh, we, over the over the last week and a half, we've had about uh, four days where we've had either some light snow or some flurries, and it's uh, it's been rather chilly with uh, highs only in the 30s and 40s. So, um, we're, we're a long way from seeing any of that warm air, and I, and I have to admit that uh, those uh, Gulf Stream waters that Shea was showing, uh, I don't think they will ever get up here. Uh, you know, warm warm water is right around 60 degrees off the coast of Maine. And I, I did notice that uh, as you went northward, uh, you, can, you can see the, uh, the blues as you get up toward uh, New England. And uh, as I said, uh, once you get on the Maine coast, you see some of those darker blues. And it's rather chilly water right now. I think that's your Labrador current pulling down from the northeast. Yeah, and, and one of the problems that we have in Maine in the springtime is that uh, a north wind is a cold wind, of course, because the air is coming from Canada. An east wind is a cold wind because it's coming off the cold water. 
A south wind is a cold wind because it's coming off the cold water. The only hope for any warm temperatures is if we get a west wind. And then as long as we've got some air uh, moving in from the uh, from uh, western uh, New England or New York, we might see some warm temperatures. But it's pretty tough to get a uh, warm day in, in Maine this time of the year. And John, before we talk about lightning, uh, you know, it's been a long winter for us here in the southeast, and I know it's been really long for you guys. Well, what is your duration of winter? When do you guys start to really uh, maybe get your first frost freeze and then get your first snowfall, and how long does that normally last up in Maine? Well, it depends which part of Maine you're in. The uh, Once you get up in the mountains of Maine, the first uh, frost freeze, typically we're looking at uh, late September, early November. Uh, for much of Maine, uh, usually around October, uh, sometime around the, uh, I'd say the first or second week, most of the state is going to see a, a freeze. And, you know, as far as last freeze, uh, it can be late May or even June before the last freeze occurs. So uh, some years, a very, very short growing season. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite different up here. And, and certainly uh, some of the crops that you can plant more the cold weather crops than the, the warm weather crops that you have farther south. As far as uh, what I consider winter, uh, when we have a continuous snow cover, usually we uh, start to see a continuous snow cover sometime in December, and it usually lasts into April. So um, somewhere between four and five months where we have snow on the ground. For those of us that like snow, it's, uh, you know, it's wonderful. A lot of outdoor recreational activities between Downhill skiing, cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, um, and and really uh, uh, people enjoy it. And of course, uh, the snowmobilers out in the trails. So a lot of activities, and uh, you know that's what Maine's about, and that's what New England is about is uh, enjoying the winters. There you go, uh, all you snow lovers here in the Carolinas. I I think you need need to go north because all the rest of us we're done with the winter weather so uh well john being in maine how, how did you become a lightning guy maybe for uh the folks who haven't uh, seen you on our show in the past kind of give us a, a little background information about you how you got interested in weather and then maybe what kind of steered you towards um doing a lot of lightning safety stuff well uh as far as getting interested in weather like like many meteorologists uh as a child i always uh was interested in weather. Uh, I like to watch thunderstorms in the summertime. In the wintertime, of course, there's nothing better than a snowstorm. And I have to admit, I used to go out and measure how much snow was on the ground probably every hour or possibly less than that if it was snowing heavily. So always uh, extremely interested in the weather. And uh, so then, uh, you know, in school, actually, I started out uh, in college as a uh, biology major, but uh, realized that I really enjoyed meteorology, had taken a meteorology course, and decided to switch majors. So that's that's kind of what got me into the uh, professional field of meteorology. And then as far as lightning, uh, it is something that I've always been intrigued by. Uh, I think many people have. Uh, I did see lightning strike a tree as a, as a child, uh, watched it blow the tree apart, which was uh, uh, to me, very interesting to watch, uh, but I always was fascinated by lightning. I came up here, I worked at uh, um, in Washington, D.C. for about 17 and a half years and came up here to Maine in 1995. I started looking at the statistics here, and although we don't have very much lightning here in the state of Maine, uh, our per capita number of people that were being struck by lightning was quite high. In fact, uh, actually, ever since I've been here, if you look at lightning uh, fatalities per capita, we're in the top 10, and we have less lightning than everywhere east of the Rocky Mountains. So I wanted to do something about it, and I thought, you know, uh, people just don't understand the dangers associated with lightning. So I started a lightning safety week here in the state of Maine in 1999, and then uh, eventually, uh, worked nationally to get that as a national week, which was started in 2001. And that's kind of the start of the effort and actually uh, been going to lightning conferences, increasing my knowledge on it, and have been the uh, National Weather Service's National Lightning Safety Specialist uh, since then. 
answer a lot of questions about lightning and, uh, you know, really enjoy uh, not only answering the questions, but uh, just simply uh, trying to keep people safe. And John, that's a, that's a good point. So for maybe our folks who are listening tonight or, or, or watching for those who may not be too much into the weather world, but you know, their outdoor activity is affected by, by thunderstorms. Kind of talk to uh, those folks who may not be as weather savvy as, as some others, how lightning is, is created. I mean, how do we get lightning? How do we get these thunderstorms and these lightning bolts? Okay. Well, that, that's a, that's a very good question. And actually uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, I've got a little presentation here that talks uh, about uh, thunderstorms and lightning. And um, let me see if I can uh, switch to a screen. We got you there, John. You got me here. All right. So we'll go ahead and uh, start from that screen. And actually, let's see. Well, I may have actually what I'm going to have to switch screens because it wants to put it on a different screen. A little bit of a problem there. That's that's probably my fault. I think I was telling them earlier. If you put, put it over on one screen on, on a different monitor, it'll pop up on a different monitor. But uh, take your time, John. Take your time. All right. Yeah, we'll we'll get it going here in just a second. So let me pick the screen here. There we go. And there we go. So we'll start off talking a little bit about. Uh, how thunderstorms develop. Typically in the summertime, the sun heats the uh, ground. You get incoming radiation. That heating causes uh, pockets of air to rise in the atmosphere. And as they rise, they cool forming clouds. Uh, if the atmosphere is right or something we call unstable, those clouds will continue to rise into the atmosphere into something we call a cumulonimbus cloud. Uh, and of course, with that cloud, we start to get rain. But in order to get lightning, we need to get our cloud charged. And that charging area is in the central part of the storm where you have various types of precipitation particles. Um, you have, of course, small cloud water droplets. And then you ha also have uh, very tiny ice crystals, which I've represented here as snowflakes, and something called grapple, which is like a pellet of snow. And you'll notice that the... Uh, Ice crystals are being carried upward into the storm. That's because they're very light. The grapple, which is uh, heavier and more dense, either tends to fall or is suspended in the storm. And you'll notice because of those differences that there are collisions between the two. And when we have the, those collisions, uh, those ice crystals take on a positive charge. The grapple takes on a negative charge. And that's the uh, main charging mechanism of our thunderstorm clouds. So if we take a look back at our cloud, uh, we're getting a separation of charges and it looks like, really looks like a great big battery in the atmosphere. And that battery is going to supply the electricity that will be used to produce the lightning. So there are two types of uh, flashes, two basic types, a positive flash and a negative flash. The positive flash originates in the top of the uh, storm where you have positive charges, uh, then the negative flash or negative cloud to ground flash uh, originates in the negative area of the storm and comes to ground. And then you have also in cloud flashes or infra cloud flashes between positive and negative portions of the uh, thunderstorm itself. Now, most of the flashes that we see are negative cloud to ground flashes. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the process that we go through in order to get a negative uh, cloud-to-ground flash. Uh, it is the more common type of flash, especially in the summer, and it usually occurs under or near the uh, cloud base. So uh, the other thing that happens is these negative charges in the central part of the storm influence what's going on in ground level. So if we look at the uh, little box that I've drawn here in black and zoom in on that, um, initially 
the ground and anybody on the ground starts out neutrally charged. But as that negative charge increases aloft, it repels negative charge on the ground, leaving the ground and anything on the ground positively charged. Now, it's okay to be a positive person, but it's not good to be a positively charged person whenever a thunderstorm is in the area. Uh, uh, and you've probably heard of cases like this, but uh, it can cause your hair to stand on it. And that's obviously a very bad sign. You don't wanna wait for that to happen because that's a sure sign that lightning is about ready to strike. And in fact, uh, when this, uh, shortly after this picture was taken, Lightning did strike, it did kill one person. Neither of these two were uh, killed, but one of them was injured in that particular flash. So coming back to our thunderstorm cloud, we see where the charges are. There's also a small charge that builds up on the base of the cloud. And the initiation of the flash actually occurs in the area that I have outlined in the box between the uh, negative charged area and that small positive charge at the base of the clouds. Uh, what basically happens is the air starts to break down into what we call an electrical plasma. Uh, an electrical plasma allows charge to move through it, and the negative charge just simply starts uh, draining toward the ground. It goes through that small positive layer, and it emerges from the, uh, from the cloud as something we call a step leader. The step leader just comes down. It's just negative charge. It's looking for a connection. Any connection will do. Tends to strike the taller objects in the area. Um, we, um, it doesn't come down evenly. We call it a step leader because it comes down in steps. So if we look at one little branch, what's literally happening is it's jumping down in one step of about 150 feet at a time. And with each one of those, it creates a tiny little flash. Now we don't see any of this because it happens so quickly. That step leader is coming down out of the cloud at about 200,000 miles an hour. So very, very quick, uh, and the eye can't detect it. So in slow motion, it's stepping its way to the ground, looking for a connection. As it approaches the ground, things start happening on the ground as well. So if we look inside that little box, with it approaching above the taller objects, the air starts to break down and negative charge starts moving toward ground, which allows what we call a positive streamer. So negative charge moves toward the ground as that step leader approaches. Eventually there's a connection, and when there's a connection, uh, all three of these streamers will discharge. Of course, the main flash, the main return stroke, will occur on the uh, uh, streamer that makes the connection with the step leader. So looking at this in the big picture again, uh, once that connection is made, it just simply drains the uh, charge from that channel that is developed from the step leader. That charge just simply goes to ground as it drains. And from higher and higher levels. Now, many people may have heard that the flash goes upward. Uh, in fact, the visible flash does go upward because as that charge is draining to the ground, it excites the molecules in the air and they produce photons, which is a form of light. So as it drains to the ground, photons are produced and the flash works its way up through the channel as we drain all the electrons as they uh, move toward the ground. If there's additional charge up in the cloud, it can come down through that ionized channel left by the return stroke as what we call a dart leader. Once that dart leader reaches the ground, we can get a, a subsequent return stroke. Each one of those return strokes causes lightning to flicker. So if you're watching lightning and you're seeing it flickering, it's telling you that there are, there's additional charge aloft, that you're getting dart leaders, and, um, and those dart leaders and return strokes are the flickering that you see. So if we put it all together in slow motion, the step leader comes down, stepping its way to the ground, looking for a connection. You get streamers reaching up, uh, initial return stroke, dart leaders, and subsequent return strokes uh, that cause the lightning to flicker. So at normal speed, it looks more like this. So return strokes, the initial step leader and return stroke are branched. 
but subsequent dart leaders and return strokes are usually not branched. There is also something we call continuing current, which occurs when there's a continuous flow of charge. And uh, when that occurs, uh, the lightning tends to pulsate. <clears throat> so I'm not sure how well this is going to show up, but I do have some high-speed uh, lightning video, uh, courtesy of Dr. Uh, Marcelo Saba uh, from Brazil. The video was shot at about 4,000 frames per second. If we view this video at 30 frames per second, uh, one second of video would last about two minutes and 13 seconds. So in this particular case, it's a highly branched step leader, only one return stroke. The video is somewhat overexposed, so it appears very bright. The video is, as I said before, is taken at 4,000 frames per second. I'm only going to show a total of 133 frames, which is one thirtieth of a second. And from the time you see the step leader emerge till you see the return stroke occurs in just 30 frames. So one 133rd of a second. So certainly very quick. So if we watch the video, you'll see the uh, step leader emerging. As it approaches the ground, you get the return stroke. And that's literally what happens. Uh, we can let it run through one more time. And then we can look at it frame by frame. So step leader return stroke. So if I do it frame by frame, you can see each one of many leader tips racing to the ground. And right there, you can see the connection is made and the return stroke is just starting to work its way up through the channel. And then in the next frame, it's pretty much moved up through the uh, part of the channel that we can see. And then it fades away. Another example, this one's quite different. Uh, two main branches, the leader uh, is followed by continuing current. So you'll see it pulsate a little bit. Video is not ex as exposed, so it will not be nearly as bright. Again, taken at 4,000 frames per second. I'll be showing uh, 174 frames total, which is 1 23rd of a second. And from the time the step leader emerges to the return stroke, uh, it would only be 76 frames, which is about 1 50th of a second. So it'll appear, uh, as I said, not nearly as bright on the right-hand side. Uh, two channels racing to the ground. The first one that gets there will discharge the entire uh, Leader, and you can see it pulsating a little bit there as it uh, as the continuing current continues. One more time, racing to the ground and the return stroke, and then some continuing current. So, John, real quick, a quick question for you: um, the return stroke. You said it pulses at times. What? I've seen some videos where it pulses three, four, five times. It sort of lingers for uh, almost a second or two. Is that is there any particular reason for that? Well, that would be continuing current, and that's because there's a charge that's feeding into the uh, lightning channel continuously from aloft. It doesn't uh, uh, break down. It's it's uh, um, you know electrically continuous flow of electricity. So. Um, you know, the insulating capacity of the air will most of the time stop it until you get the charge built up again. But in this particular case, there's enough charge aloft that it will continue to uh, come down the channel and uh, you'll continue to see the uh, pulsation. Thank you. Sure. So I'm stepping through this one and you'll see that uh, on the left hand side, when it makes contact, it works its way up through the channel. Uh, however, it hasn't made it up to the top, the connecting piece, uh, and so you can see, still see on the right-hand side, uh, especially near the ground, that you still have a leader tip that's trying to make it to the ground. The very next frame, uh, very overexposed, and uh, another frame later, you can see it's working its way down to the ground again, and then it's completely discharged. And I'll go through it. You can see it pulsating a bit there as well. So the other type of flash, as I said, is the positive flash. 
The one thing about the positive flash that you should know is that it typically reaches out away from the storm. It catches people by surprise. It can strike as much as 10 miles from the thunderstorm cloud itself. So, um, so the rule we have, if you hear thunder, you're already in danger. You need to get inside right away. Uh, lightning, or you can hear thunder only about 10 miles from a storm uh, and lightning can strike outward 10 miles from the storm. You can also get discharges from towers going upward and branching upward. Bit unusual, but uh, if you live by a tower, you may have seen lightning branching upward from the tower. Um, so that's a, another type of lightning. So I'm gonna stop there and uh, we can talk a little bit more about some other questions. Well, John, you're, you're talking about the positive lightning. Um, one thing that folks may have heard maybe a saying is what we call bolts out of the blue or or something, these positive lightning strikes, they can come with clear skies, like you're saying, with a thunderstorm 10 miles in either direction of them. Yeah, a lot of times, uh, if it's 10 miles away, certainly people don't think they're close enough to be struck. The other problem is if a storm is 10 miles away, you may or may not be able to see the storm at all. If you're in a mountainous area, uh, the mountains may block your uh, visibility of the storm. Uh, if you're in an area with trees, you may not be able to see it. Uh, you may be able to just see. A lot of times people assume that if it's clear above them, it's clear everywhere and they're safe. But in reality, um, you know, if you think you hear thunder, it's probably a good time to start heading in. Uh, and if, you, if you're certain you hear thunder, then you definitely want to be inside. And John, that's a good point. Um, some, some things, and we can cover more of these later on, but kind of brings in what uh, one of the uh, lightning myths per se, either they could be true or false, but <clears throat> actually you can tell how far the lightning is by counting the seconds, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the speed of sound is about 1,100 feet per second. So lightning travels about uh, a mile every five seconds. So if you watch the flash, uh, you start counting, uh, and then uh, when you hear the thunder, stop counting, take that number, divide by five, and that'll tell you how many miles away the flash was. So, for example, if you start counting and then you hear the thunder after you get to 20, you divide by five, it tells you the lightning is four miles away. And I should point out that it tells you how far away that particular lightning strike was, not necessarily where the next one is going to be. And if you're uh, if you're only making it to 20, you're much too close. Yeah, I always think of the movie Poltergeist when uh, when you talk about timing and trying to one one thousand, two one thousand, and there's the suspense built up in that movie. Um, question from a viewer for you, and this is from Dan Andrews, and he asked a really good question: uh, How accurate is satellite lightning detection compared to ground-based detection services nowadays? I know we have some ground detection. Uh, services, but now we have the GLM with GOES. And um, do you have any advice or um, words on that? Well, uh, yeah. In terms of the uh, in terms of the GLM, uh, I, I think the good news is that uh, it's it's government owned. So uh, once once we uh, get it tested and make sure everything's working the way it's supposed to be, it will be available to the general public. Uh, so that uh, that is uh, what I consider the, the positive note on this. As far as the ground-based lightning detection systems, they are obviously more accurate because they're actually measuring where the uh, actual uh, contact point or where the lightning actually makes contact with the ground. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, there is an error associated with those, but when we compare it to the GLM, the GLM is measuring light at the top of the cloud. Obviously, the lightning uh, channel, which goes to the ground, may be 30, 40, 50 miles away uh, once it gets up into the top of the cloud. So, um, you know, there is definitely going to be an error there. Um, there are certain times when it's more difficult to detect lightning with the, uh, uh, the satellite, especially under bright sunlight. Um, so, you know, in terms of the overall accuracy, the, the ground-based system should be more accurate. In terms of availability to the general public, the GLM data will be available to the general public. It should help people uh, 
uh, you know, see where lightning is and uh, um, hopefully uh, get to safety earlier. Okay, great. One one little question there uh, before you move on with your presentation. Uh, how comfortable are you with some of the radar apps that are out there with the lightning depiction? So we have Radar Scope Pro, which obviously a lot of meteorologists used, uh, but we have Radar Alive. There's a number of different uh, radar apps out there that show lightning on them. Do you think that they do a pretty good job overall? Uh, I, I have to tell you that uh, that I have not seen any of those. Uh, I, I usually don't use them. I I use the rule that uh, I tell people to use, which is when thunder roars, go indoors. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually, uh, and, and I, I say that, but I'm also looking at just the radar on the computer as well, the weather service radars. So uh, I, I'm monitoring both of those and uh, keeping track of it. But I will say as far as apps on the, on the phone, they're great. Um, you know, if you can get lightning data on the phone, um, you know, that's a wonderful thing. You can see a little bit more. but obviously don't ignore the obvious if you're hearing thunder uh, regardless of what the app is telling you it's time to get inside the other thing is that keep in mind that every thunderstorm has a uh, first strike of lightning so uh, if if it's looking like uh, there's a storm headed your way on radar uh, you know don't wait for that first strike of lightning. some of the apps show total lightning which would include in-cloud lightning uh, in cloud lightning typically occurs before cloud to ground lightning and I use the word typically because no guarantees on that so uh, if you are starting to hear some crackling or rumbling aloft that may be some in cloud lightning from a developing thunderstorm get inside right away whether it shows up on your app or not okay thank you sir all right well John um, one thing I know we're, we're closing in on nine o'clock uh, I know you uh, distribute um, information every year on, on lightning casualties and injuries. Uh, I believe from the data that I've seen, 2017 was the least um, least lightning strikes uh, in the United States with, with folks involved. Yeah, we. Uh, I don't know. I have to say we were very lucky last year. We had 16 only 16 lightning deaths, and I, I use the word lucky uh, because uh, you know we didn't have any more than that. I you know I don't like to see any lightning deaths, but uh, in terms of uh, fatalities, 16 is uh, a good number. It was a record low number. The previous record was 23 fatalities. At the same time, uh, if we go back to 2016, we had 39 fatalities, which was quite a few, uh, much higher than we had seen in many years. So we had uh, a bad year in 2016, a much better year in 2017, and I'm hoping for even a better year uh, in 2018. We've already uh, started out with two fatalities this year, uh, one in Texas with uh, uh, a man and his son were uh, repairing uh, uh, fencing uh, for a uh, cattle ranch, uh, and one of them was struck and killed. Uh, and just uh, this past weekend, we did have uh, an instance where uh, uh, a lady in Florida was struck and killed uh, in uh, an unfortunate incident. So uh, we've, we already have two deaths this year. It's very early in the season, and uh, certainly hoping we're not going to see any more in any time in the near future. And John, I know I know you have some of your presentation uh, still to do, and um, I know Ashley's got a few questions for you. But do you think the the presence of social media, the when thunder roars, go indoors, see a flash, make a dash, do you believe those campaigns and like social media and the outreach is really helping lower these numbers? Yeah, I, I really think it uh, it has helped uh, social media and just the whole awareness campaign because I. I think the word has gotten out. It's gotten out through the media. Uh, it's gotten through out through our partners in emergency management. Uh, you know, we've had a very good response. Uh, you know, I can go into a school and many of the kids have heard when thunder roars go indoors. So we have gotten the word out and I think it has made a difference. Uh, we've continued to see lightning fatalities decrease uh, over the years. Well, that that's some good information, and and that's something that we continue want to want to promote is, is lightning safety and, and just general weather safety. You know, lightning, thunderstorms, hurricanes, floods, uh, and so forth. So I, I think you had some more of your presentation, and then 
Um, I'll toss it to Ashley because I know she has some uh, questions emergency management side. Well, I, I was going to say, why don't we go ahead with Ashley? And okay. uh, because I, I might I have many things that I can do as far as the presentation, but uh, I'd rather make sure I answer the questions. Okay, okay. we can do that too. Perfect. Well, to segue on to his question, I'm very interested in outreach. Uh, as an emergency manager, I consider that at least 25 to 35% of my job. And my question is, is how do you think we can do lightning outreach better? I know that we've recently added see um, a flash dash inside to represent, but what are some other realms we want to consider teaching different types of people or just improving upon our education? Well, you know, that's a, that's always a difficult task as we as the numbers get smaller and smaller. But uh, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, has really helped us is the media. And, you know, we look at in, in trying to assess the situation, we look at statistics and who's being struck. And really, when we look at those statistics, it's uh, about 80 percent men. Uh, the number one activity is fishing. Uh, and so we've tried to address the fishing community and gotten the word out there. I think that's helped, but I really think it's important anytime uh, you want to reach out, you want to target a specific audience. And in order to target the appropriate audience, you really have to look at the statistics. And that's actually one of the reasons that I've been tracking fatalities quite a bit. Um, you know, when we look at men, you know, why are, why are men struck? 80% of the time and women are not struck. I don't think I want you to answer that question, but uh, you know, it is a good question. Uh, is it because they're unaware of the danger or is it because they just cho choose to ignore the danger? And if it's they choose to ignore the danger, how do you get them to change their minds? Uh, in many cases, we know they are uh, in more vulnerable situations. Uh, it might be, I mentioned fishing was the number one activity as far as lightning deaths. Um, you know, how do we get them to understand that if they're going to go out fishing on a day when there are thunderstorms forecast, stay close to safety so you can get there quickly. You don't want to be in a situation where you can't get to a safe place quickly. Um, and then, of course, they have to react quickly to that particular threat. Um, and many times they just simply wait too long. And that's that's one of the problems. So you know, addressing those situations and trying to figure out how do we communicate that information to the people that are the more vulnerable. And uh, obviously at this point that's men and certainly uh, men in, situa in certain situations. But uh, we do know that of course, uh, in terms of the work fatality, which is work fatalities, they're lower than, uh, uh, you know, many of the other categories, but um, you know, those are mostly men as well. So there are some reasons why men are struck more often than not. But if we look at like a beach fatalities, uh, beach fatalities, 65% men, 35% women. Uh, and I think if you look at the beach on any particular day when there isn't a thunderstorm, you'll find just as many women as there are men there. So obviously the women are making better choices. But it is a, uh, you know, from an emergency management perspective, uh, a difficult task to reach those particular people that are most vulnerable. Definitely. And I think one of our hardest challenges is getting people to realize that it can happen to them. Because a lot of people will go out there and say, oh, no, I won't get hit by lightning. So just getting them to realize that the risk is real and to take action on that is just an issue we have with all hazards. Uh, yeah. Last oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to comment on that. Is that yeah? I I, I think you're right, and um, and part and that's another reason for tabulating the fatalities. I I have a list that of course is online, and uh, it, it's shown up on the screen a couple times. And the reason for keeping that list is so it's available uh, either to the public or to the media, so that they can report these fatalities, um, so that people are aware that lightning does kill people. It's not just a People say it's a freak accident. No, lightning strikes 25 million times in the United States. And those are uh, 25 times for it could potentially kill someone, 25 million times. And, you know, don't take chances. Exactly. So go ahead. Please. Exactly. So my last question isn't about outreach. So 
have to do a little bit of a segue, but so I work in Williamson County and it's interesting because we have a lot of lightning house fires on the west side of the county and not very many on the east side. And we had a simple thunderstorm. It wasn't severe. It wasn't anything special come through. And I think we had seven to eight house fires from this storm, um, which is a really big concern for us because we don't have that many resources to fight that many structure fires. So I've had a lot of firefighters and people in emergency management come to me knowing that I have a weather background asking me why. And they have their theories, um, whether or not they're right or not about geology or any kind of attraction. Um, do you have any idea why this could be happening or how we could do additional research on this? I find it a very strange situation. Well, uh, first of all, I'm assuming that you have just as much lightning on either side of the county. So, yes. uh, um, so given that that's the case, um, there, there are some possibilities. Uh, for example, if one area had more and taller trees than the other area, it might be striking the trees rather than the houses. Um, you know, it may come down to the type of construction, uh, brick versus uh, more wood or it may just be uh, the luck of the draw. And uh, a lot of times with lightning, it is very random. We, we really don't know, uh, you know, exactly. We, we see these variations and a good example of that was the number of fatalities from last year uh, versus 2016. So we see these differences and there just simply is a lot of randomness. And, you know, especially when we're dealing with lightning, uh, it's a, a, a very ra random atmospheric uh, uh, phenomena. So I don't have a good explanation. I don't know if there is one. Uh, it could just be the randomness of uh, the lightning strikes. And that's very likely too. And another issue I think might be population. We have a lot of the um, Austin commuters who are living on that side, as opposed to the other side of the county is a little more rural. So I think that might have something to do with it. But if you ever hear of any situation somewhere else in the country that that's happening, I'm very interested to hear about it. Okay, sure, yeah. And and I, I you know, if there are more houses there, certainly more houses are going to get struck uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, I mean, it's just uh, the numbers, the way the numbers work out. But, uh, you know, as far as houses being struck, some people ask me about lightning rods. Are they effective? Uh, properly installed lightning rod, uh, and, and it's not just the rod, but it includes a down connector and then the uh, part that goes in the ground that allows the charge to spread safely into the ground. They do protect homes and they do prevent fires. They do not attract lightning. Uh, they simply uh, intercept the lightning and provide it a safe path into the ground and prevent fires. Oh, awesome tidbit. Thank you so much. Sure. So I think, think Jordan, Jordan, think yeah. Jordan had a question. Yeah. Hey, John. Um, so I'm a big uh, sports fan and I watch a lot of baseball during the summer months. Um, and I know the last couple of years I've seen a couple of games, maybe not in person, but on social media where, you know, people will be sitting in the stands and they'll take pictures of lightning flashing across the sky, you know, just beyond the stadium or, you know, a couple of miles or so. And I know that there's been some regulations put in place to, you know, stop the progress of the game when, when lightning reaches a certain distance threshold. I think it may be eight miles or something like that. But it's interesting that's still within 10 miles, you know, where we can get these bolts from the blue or the positive strokes that can be very deadly as well. So I guess, you know, my question is, you know, these stadiums full of, you know, tens of thousands of people, as a huge hazard, is that something we need to really have a, a, a stronger national conversation or really, you know, talk about these issues uh, with such a high uh, threat level? Yeah, I, I think that uh, that is a very important issue. Uh, we actually have been working with uh, many stadiums, particularly some of the colleges. And I think you've probably seen that, especially uh, when you get into some of the fall football games where you've seen a lot of them, uh, postponed or, uh, um, you know, they've told people to get in the stand. And uh, so, you know, we have been working on it. And, and even seeing something like that is a good learning lesson for those people that are, uh, you know, watching the game. The fact that uh, 
you know, either college or professional sports are taking the lightning seriously. And there were many years ago that you'd say, see a game continue until it started raining where they have to put the uh, tarmac out on the field to keep it dry. Uh, nowadays, they, uh, they not only uh, stop the game, but they try and get people to, under the stands to a safer place. Um, you know, so that they, they do keep people safe. Or if, in some cases, if, uh, you know, if they can't get everybody under the stands to a safe place, they encourage them to go to their cars. And of course, the car, because it provides, if it provides a metal shell, uh, allows the uh, lightning to pass around it if it is struck. People don't realize it, but cars are struck every year. In fact, uh, uh, just this past weekend, there was, uh, uh, or I guess last week, there was a car uh, driving down the highway that was uh, struck in Ohio. People inside are safe. Uh, I'm not sure the car en ended up quite as well. I think the electronics were fried, but uh, uh, people should know a, a hardtop metal vehicle is a, a great place to uh, uh, stay safe, especially if you're away from a substantial building. And if you like watching thunderstorms, you can go out into your uh, car and uh, sit there and watch the thunderstorm and feel safe. And John, that's a great question. Follow up. Um, I do the consultant work for Speedway Motorsports, and uh, we work at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Last year with the Coca-Cola 600, uh, we had lightning detected 12 miles from the track, and we were able to communicate with NASCAR, and they pulled the drivers in on pit lane. Uh, we were able to evacuate the track before the actual storm moved into the area. So uh, it was a success story because, you know, no one was injured. And that's that's the whole thing with event safety is making sure folks are in out of the elements. So I appreciate you backing up the 10 to 12 mile uh, radius there because that is, uh, that is, you know, depending on storm speed, those things can get you pretty quickly. Well, and the other part of that is is how quickly can you evacuate the stands in that case. And that's the other thing you have to consider is, uh, you know, how long is it going to take you to get that number of people into a safe place? And oftentimes that could be 10 or 15 minutes. And you do have to account for that uh, because you want everybody there before the uh, storm. And, and uh, I think eight miles was uh, mentioned here, but you want people in safety before it gets to eight miles. We usually use the 10 mile rule, but uh, I realize it is kind of difficult with for uh, some of those stadiums where you have a huge number of people. So the kind of the goal is to get everybody to safety before uh, there's even a threat. Yeah, we timed ours 20 minutes. It took us, uh, we was able to get everybody into to safety. So uh, we was able to log that in future reference. We know now about the time frame and miles out of of, of what we need to do. I know we're, we're past nine o'clock. A couple of questions uh, I'm sure everyone still have. But, but one thing I want to ask you, John, is, uh, about lightning safety, you know, we're coming up on spring and summer. A lot of folks may be out golfing or soccer or, or fishing. If they're outdoors and, and there's no real shelter, what should folks do? Uh, where, where can they seek refuge uh, for, from lightning? Well, first of all, people have to realize that there, there just simply is no safe place outside. So you're, you're really looking at trying to, uh, minimize the threat as much as you can. And in, in reality, you can't minimize it that much, which is why we want people to try and get to a safe place ahead of time, plan ahead so you don't get in that situation. But, um, you know, in terms of when we look at people being struck, one of the greatest threats as far as uh, death is if you're struck directly. So you don't want to be the tallest object in the immediate area. Uh, one place that's particularly dangerous is the water because you are the tallest object if you're out of the boat. So get off the water. Um, if you have a wooded area to get into, try and get into an area of shorter trees. And if you're with a group, try and spread out so that if one person is struck, uh, that others may go uh, uh, seek help for, uh, you know, so that uh, you can get help there. Call 911. And uh, if necessary, start administering CPR uh, if the uh, person's heart is stopped. But, uh, you know, as far as being caught outside, that's just something you don't want to have happen because if that step leader that I showed is coming down right above you, uh, you're in trouble. And you're in trouble whether you're out on the water, you're in trouble if you're in the woods. But certainly the woods is a safer place because it'll strike a tree. And then you have to be mostly concerned about the ground current. 
uh, if you are in the woods, uh, you don't, uh, you know, the best thing to do is keep your feet as close together as possible. Uh, the farther your feet are spread apart, the more likely you are to either be seriously injured or killed. That's some great information right there. Um, you guys, uh, any other questions before we kind of start to finish up? All right. Well, well John, one, one thing, uh, any other safety tips that, that you want to give out to the followers before we kind of close our conversation tonight, which I have to say it has been great that the, the graphics and the presentation you gave was spot on. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the main thing is just simply the when thunder roars, go indoors. If you're hearing thunder, you need to get inside uh, immediately. Uh, and the other part of that is you should remain there for 30 minutes after the last thunder. Um, most people think, oh, the storm has moved on. It stopped raining. No, it's not safe to go out. You have to wait that 30 minutes because charges often linger in the atmosphere. And, uh, you know, in, in a typical year, we see... Uh, people that are struck because they just simply went outside too soon. Just wait that 30 minutes and you should be fine. All right, John. Well, we, we appreciate that. Um, if our followers want to uh, learn more about lightning safety or I, know, I think there's a website you guys use, um, how can they, how can they follow the, the information and get up to date lightning information about maybe injuries and, and lightning strikes and stuff like that? Yeah, well, we our uh, website uh, has a wealth of information. It's www.lightningsafety.noaa, which is N-O-A-A, dot G-O-V. And as I said, we have uh, just a wealth of information there. Uh, you can find out how many lightning strikes uh, you get in the state of North Carolina. You can find out... Uh, where North Carolina ranks in terms of uh, people struck. I think uh, if you check, you'll find that there were about uh, uh, 12 people struck in North Carolina over the last 10 years. And if you go into uh, some of the victim section, you can actually read what those people were doing. So uh, just uh, a lot of advice, whether it be the safety, the science, the, you know, the medical part of it, and frequently asked questions. So we try and provide as much as we can and if you don't find the information you're looking for, feel free to uh, send the webmaster a question, and we'll uh, we'll try and answer it. That's all great information and a great uh, website to follow. I have it saved in my bookmarks, and uh, whenever we're talking about thunderstorms, I like to use those graphics to pass out on social media just to to remind folks, you know, thunderstorms are in the forecast that day. Here's what you need to be uh, on the lookout for. Well, John, we appreciate you joining us tonight, and. Uh, uh, as always, great information. We're going to do a Tweet of the Week segment, so stick around if you want to. Uh, this is where uh, our panelists uh, peruse Twitter throughout the week and kind of point out, uh, kind of pick up something that's interesting to them to talk about. So uh, any of you guys have a tweet ready to go? All right, I think Jordan has his. So Jordan, I'll let you uh, start us off tonight. Oh, Jordan. Oh. Sorry, I had to unmute mute myself. Yeah, there you go. You're good. There we go. So, uh, yeah, this uh, this particular uh, supercell was super impressive. I think this was, yeah, this was from yesterday. Um, and if you didn't know better and you looked at this, you'd say, yeah, this could be a, you know, classic Great Plains supercell. But lo and behold, this was over Fort Lauderdale, Florida yesterday, and it uh, dropped down a brief EF0 tornado uh, in downtown Fort Lauderdale so that I some, you know, uh, buildings there in the background. Yeah, I, we may be having some issues with Jordan. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's my tweet of the week, Scotty. All right. Thank you for that, Jordan. Uh, we appreciate that. That was a crazy to see some of the videos coming out of downtown uh, Fort Lauderdale yesterday of that, that tornado that, uh, that touched down in the city. So uh, let's go over to Ashley. I see she has her picture up. So Ashley, go ahead. Of course. So as you guys know, so I told you guys all about it last Friday, I think we had a slight risk, but it was on the edge of us. So I kind of underestimated the fact that we would get anything that cool. So I went and got a steak 
And then I checked radar and saw this massive super supercell rotating. Um, I think it was Burnett County that got the actual tornado warning, but it was moving into Williamson County. And I couldn't believe the structure with this. It's absolutely amazing. And we really don't get this good of structure down here in Central Texas. That's much more of a, a panhandle, a North Texas kind of thing. So just to see this rogue storm spin up down here, and then I missed it barely because I was having a steak is unfortunate, but a beautiful picture. That is like your classic wall cloud mothership right there. Beautiful. Yes. And I believe they did confirm tornado. I think, I don't know if they ever sent anybody out though, cause it didn't impact anything. That is really, really symmetrical. It's like something you'd see Michael Binsky film, you know, out in his 4k videos, which I can't wait to see his next series of videos for this year. Just amazing stuff. Yeah, and just think, if I didn't have that steak, I could have probably just drove like 20 minutes and saw it. But oh well. Was the steak good, though, Ashley? You got to tell us. Was it a good well, steak? No, not really, because I looked at my radar <laughs> right when I got it, and I was like, oh, I need to go. So I just packaged all my food and just booked it and then ate the steak the next day. So it wasn't even worth it, I guess. <laughs> That's too funny. Too funny. Well, Jared, I see you have your tweet of the week up, so go ahead, buddy. Yes, I do. And uh, today is, I, I guess, I guess they just invent these days. I don't know where they came from, but today is National Pet Day. And so we have Cappy the Weather Weenie. Uh, this is from <laughs> Ashley Ruiz down in Pensacola, Florida, W-E-A-R. Um, and this is a Helicity Designs Weather Weenie shirt. I actually own one of these as somebody who is owned by Dachshunds. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we like to kind of Joke around with that title a little bit, but it is uh, National Pet Day. You know, great structure on that dachshund there. Uh, nice little curve there. Uh, you know, a little hook echo maybe in his feet or something like that. But uh, <laughs> nothing but um, very cute. Very, uh, very, very cute. And, uh, you know, there you go. All right. Thank you for that, Jared. And, uh, Shay, do you have yours ready? I do, Scotty. Mine is a, um, a post from Local 8 News in Idaho Falls, and this one actually was brought up just before the show. John Dinsinius uh, told me about something really interesting that happened over here, and it was a thunderstorm in the area, and lightning actually had something to do with, uh, or is believed to have had something to do with several, I would say, a hundred geese falling out of the sky. So I am going to pull this up, and you'll have to kind of look closely in the video uh, it is available on localnews8.com, and you can go there and you can watch the video. But I'll go ahead and blow the screen up. Let me know when you can see. We got you. Everybody good? All right. You won't be able to hear the volume, but they're they're talking about the story, and then they're going to switch to the camera here in just a moment, and you'll you'll see the storm, and then you'll see these little things kind of falling out of the sky. They're actually bigger birds. They're snow geese uh, that are that are falling out of the sky here. So we'll see here. If you look on top of the building, there goes one right there. And then they'll slow it down here in just a minute, and you'll see a few more falling. But they counted up to about 100. There's a whole bunch falling out right there. Wow. Just littering out of the sky. <sighs> and, uh, you know, when you get this much charge in the air around a thunderstorm and you get flocks of any kind of bird, uh, you can only imagine that they all kind of get zapped at one time. But that's uh, that's pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. That's crazy could you imagine like driving down the road and just all these geese just fly out at the same time yeah there's more there i mean the video goes on and on and um like i said local8news.com has the video there very very fascinating stuff uh usually this time of the year we we see that birds are falling out of the air for other reasons but not that many i've never seen 100 in a story before that's impressive so thanks a lot, John, for that tidbit and, and just being able to share that story on air. All right, Shay. Shay, thank you for that. Uh, my tweet of the week is from the World Meteorological Organization. They uh, The committee is meeting uh, this week, and so they're going to be reviewing the uh, 2017 Atlantic hurricane <laughs> season, and uh, it will be decided which hurricane names, if any, will be retired. And I believe we're I'll probably in agreement that Maria and Irma and Harvey will all be retired, but that decision will be made um, this uh, upcoming week as, as the organization gets together. And I believe, uh, which I'm not sharing the tweet right now, but I believe the 2018 hurricane names have been released as well. But uh, we should probably hear by the end of the week, if Harvey and Maria and Irma have uh, been uh, retired. And I think we've all talked about it before, pretty 
pretty much conclusion that that they will be uh, they are devastating uh, hurricanes all in themselves. That's right, Scotty. CSU just released their hurricane outlook for the year, and that's uh, uh, Phil Klotzbach and uh, a couple other gen- gentlemen there that uh, come out with those predictions. And then Noah will have their predictions coming very soon. I think the first week of May. So we'll uh, we'll see what they have to say about this coming year. There's a lot of anxiety in the air, and uh, there's not much we can really say right now as far as when the season will start. We just have to start watching when we get into late April into early May. That's about when we start watching the tropics, uh, and then the season starts June the first. So that's right, Shay. And I think as we transition into our upcoming shows, I know Shay is working. Uh, to get a tropical expert on to kind of uh, preview the hurricane season. So be looking for that announcement in the next couple of weeks with a, a guest. But next week we have on William Churchill. He's uh, with the National Weather Service in Memphis, Tennessee. He's going to be talking about the GO-16 uh, and the different operations that are used for it and the different waves and, and things that we can use as meteorologists to uh, see what's happening in our atmosphere. So William will be joining us next week to talk about that. And then on the 24th, 5th of April, we'll have Andrew Locano. Uh, he is from the National Weather Service in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, the National Weather Service has, uh, is revamping their hazardous weather um, outlook, and so uh, the Blacksburg office is kind of using the test trial for that along with the New York City office. So uh, Andrew will be joining us that night to kind of talk about the, uh, the newest outlook and, and the newest updates to that. And then as we go into May, we're going to be talking about the Global Lightning Mapper. That might be a good show for John to, to chime in on as well. Uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Dana Griffin from the National Weather Service in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, we'll be talking about that product. And on the 16th of May, uh, Cheryl Nelson will be joining us as we talk about disaster preparation, as Shay just talked about. A lot, of, um, a lot of questions in the air with this upcoming tropical season and we want to make sure you and your family are prepared. So Cheryl will be with us that night to talk about what you need to do to be prepared for not only hurricanes, but tornadoes, flash floods, um, forest fires, um, earthquakes. The, the list goes on. We're all affected by that here in the southeast. So uh, that's a look at what's coming up on the Carolina Weather Group in the next few weeks. So uh, we hope that you will join us. We're here every Wednesday night at 8.15 p.m. And uh, we, uh, as you can see, we like to have fun and, and talk a little bit about weather. So we appreciate everyone. John, once again, thanks for coming on tonight. I'm sure we'll get you booked for next year. Uh, we'll have to do that pretty early because I know you're a busy man. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Scotty. You're welcome, John. And we hope that you uh, thaw out up there soon. We hope you can, we can push some of that warm air up there to Maine. Yeah, well, don't push it up too fast because uh, we'll get severe weather then. Yeah, we don't we, we don't want you to have severe weather or any uh, major snowmelt issues. But again, we appreciate you being on with us tonight. And for everyone who's watching tonight, we hope you have a great weekend. Stay weather aware this weekend here in the southeast. Uh, we're watching the potential of severe weather moving into the area. If uh, that severe weather warrants itself, we may be back on this weekend to kind of give you an update uh, and some areas to uh, to watch that. So be watching our Facebook pages along with our Twitter pages. Uh, Shay and, and Jared will be covering the uh, coastal areas of South Carolina. I'll be covering the uh, foothills and Piedmont and uh, Jordan will be covering uh, the uh, triad and the triangle and Eastern part of the state of North Carolina. So uh, for that severe weather information, we'll all be looking at Ashley to see what the severe weather is doing over on Thursday and Friday in her area. So thanks for watching us tonight and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night on the Carolina weather group. Have a great weekend.